Hey guys, this is Danny. I'm coming back to you with my second uh, podcast edition here. And uh, thank you for the response to the first podcast that I did last week. Again, I'm still kind of just in testing phase here. So, you know, I definitely hope to improve the podcast in the weeks ahead. Hopefully get some, some other people on. Uh, and kind of just keep nailing down the format and refining it and, you know, smoothing things out a little bit. So um, it's a work in progress for sure, but stay tuned and hopefully it keeps uh, getting better and better every week. So let me jump right into it. Um, And again, I think, you know, the format of this podcast is really going to be uh, mostly about me talking about a couple of things every week in the pop culture world that I'm into that week. And it could be uh, TV, movies, books, video games, comic books, uh, music. It could be anything. Um, And so that will be the bulk of what I talk about each week. And then I'll kind of just, you know, start things out with some general thoughts, maybe talk about, you know, a, a newsworthy item of the week in the pop culture world. Um, of course, you know, you got to be careful. I do work in the entertainment industry, so I don't want to say anything uh, that would get me in trouble or, uh, you know, use any kind of insider knowledge about things uh, in, in the podcast. So I'll try to steer clear of any, you know, kind of, you know, certain topics I'll, I'll still steer clear from. Um, but I do want to talk about right now, um, just, you know, last week I talked a lot about Comic-Con and what I was excited about for Comic-Con at home. And I, I did get to, uh, this past weekend, you know, take a lot of time and I watched a number of panels from the, uh, virtual Comic-Con. And so I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, it is interesting. I've heard a lot of people, uh, criticize the uh, virtual comic-con event and you know talk about how how some of the excitement may have been missing versus you know previous years and i think that was inevitable i mean you know doing uh the the event virtually you're you're gonna lose a lot of that buzz and excitement and certainly there weren't quite as many uh big studio uh reveals or or you know, big shocking announcements that you might normally see at Comic-Con. But I, I think that might have been the case no matter what, just because you know Marvel had been kind of moving their own direction. Some of the other big studios the last couple of years were, were sort of doing their own thing um, and, and not having as big a presence at Comic-Con. And again, I talked about this last week, but I'm pretty okay with that just because to me, uh, a lot of the the fun of the panels and everything at Comic-Con is more to do with the more niche uh, things that, that you know, you don't get to hear people talk about a lot. Um, you know, shining a spotlight on some of the comic book writers and artists and other, um, you know, people that, that you don't always see uh, get that spotlight. And so I enjoyed, um, you know, the panels that I watched, you know, some were better than others. As far as the big movie stuff goes, you know, some of the of the panels really did have kind of that polished, 
presentation, you know, I'm thinking about things like Bill and Ted, for example, that was kind of this very pre-produced thing um, that, that, you know, it was enjoyable nonetheless. Um, and then there were some TV things I saw, like what we do in the shadows, that was a bit more freewheeling and that was really funny and entertaining. And, and all the people from that show are super funny. Um, and then there were ones like I watched the panel for the upcoming movie Antlers that was really just the director, Scott Cooper and the producer Guillermo uh, del Toro having this very sort of, uh, in-depth, almost film school like conversation about the making of the movie. And again, I found that very interesting. Um, and I love, I always love hearing Guillermo del Toro talk about anything. So, so that was cool. And then actually my favorite panel that I think I watched for the entirety of Comic-Con was again, kind of the, the thing that's unique about, about Comic-Con, which is you, you get this kind of programming. And that was a tribute panel to the recently, um, a great legend who recently passed away in the comics world. And that was Denny O'Neill. Um, you know, I grew up loving Denny O'Neill. He was kind of a Titan of the comic book world dating back to, you know, well before I was born um, in the sixties and seventies, he uh, had some really groundbreaking stories. He wrote a, a, a legendary run on Batman in which he, took the Batman out of the 60s where it was a campier kind of lighter version and gave it a much darker, uh, more mysterious tone. And he introduced villains like uh, Ra's al Ghul, who, you know, was this sort of darker uh, villain. And he just gave Batman this sense of adventure and almost kind of this James Bond-like feeling of um, just these big globetrotting adventures. Uh, which a lot of the Ray Al Ghul stories reflect. So he really had a, a sophisticated level to his writing that you didn't see a lot, I don't think, at that time in mainstream comics. And additionally, a lot of you may know, you know, he also wrote this run on Green Arrow uh, and Green Lantern. It was a combined Green Lantern, Green Arrow book um, in the 70s that was known as the Hard Traveling Heroes storyline in which the two heroes sort of traversed America and encountered not just kind of the normal villains, but they dealt with all kinds of social issues, um, racism, drugs. Um, and a lot of those stories, you know, are still very highly regarded and, and kind of changed the, the nature of comics at that time. Um, you know, you read them now and they can feel a little bit quaint, but you know, the, the progressivism in those stories is, is pretty amazing. Um, and then he also, for Marvel, did the, the famous Iron Man story in which Tony Stark deals with alcoholism. And so, again, he brought a lot of these real-world um, kind of darker issues to comics. Um, but then, you know, when I got into really reading comics in the 90s as a kid, um, Denny O'Neill was, was all over. He was the editor of all the Batman comics at that time. And, you know, there was this big storyline, Nightfall, that introduced uh, the villain Bane and basically had Bruce Wayne's back get broken by Bane. Um, and it was this epic storyline in which eventually a new 
person became Batman, who was named Jean Paul Valley, um, who was this kind of darker, uh, more almost psychotic character who is very much like uh, along the lines of sort of the extreme type characters that you would see in comics in the 90s. Um, he was very violent. He would kill bad guys. And a whole the whole arc of the story, you know, not to spoil it if you've not read it, but basically it's all about how this more violent Batman comes along and ultimately Bruce Wayne has to sort of recover from his injury and stop this new Batman from kind of tarnishing the, the mantle uh, of the Batman. And as a kid, it left such an impression on me. And again, I look back at that story and there's a lot of like obvious ways it could have gone. But in fact, it went a very kind of psychological, interesting route that I remember as a kid, it really, again, kind of kind of just wowed me because, um, you know, it was funny because that, those Batman stories were happening kind of concurrently with the, the big death of Superman storyline. And those were the two things that really got me into comics. And the death of Superman, you know, is, is still to this day pretty amazing in terms of just being this epic like popcorn blockbuster type of story that was sort of unmatched for just the scope and the just the bigness and excitement of it and the batman stuff was was similar in a way but it was also just this much more sophisticated psychological dark story that as a kid i think initially it was the death of superman that pulled me in but then the thing that over time uh I really couldn't wait for each new chapter of was the Batman Nightfall uh, saga. And so Denny O'Neill was sort of the architect of that and wrote a lot of the key chapters. Um, and I always admired his writing a lot. Again, just very rich with atmosphere, had a lot of psychological depth, um, a lot of like social progressivism. I mean, you know, I remember in that Nightfall story, Bruce Wayne fell in love with this woman named Chandra Kinsolving, who was uh, an African-American doctor uh, who, again, I mean, you know, and maybe today it just wouldn't really even be noticed. And even at that time, it was done in a very kind of casual way that didn't draw attention to itself. But then I look back and I'm like, wow, that, you know, that was not something that you saw a lot of that kind of diversity in the supporting cast of the characters. And Denny O'Neill, um, I think, did that a lot. He introduced a lot of diverse characters into the mainstream comics. Um, and yeah, he was just a great writer that I really looked up to and I think has been kind of underrated in terms of how much he contributed. So at Comic-Con, they did this tribute panel to him and they had all kinds of great writers um, who had worked with him over the years, uh, kind of paying tribute. You had, you know, um, uh, Joe Duffy was there, uh, Paul Levitz, a bunch of others. And just all the stories that they told about him were great. You know, a lot of funny anecdotes, a lot of moving anecdotes. Um, and it really gave me a lot of insight into who Denny O'Neill was as a person, what his sort of writing philosophy was. And, you know, as a writer, you know, it's interesting because there's so many people out there on Twitter um, and other places who kind of give you just constant writing advice. And sometimes they're like, who even are these people? You know, what are their credentials? What have they done? And why should they be the ones that I listen to? 
And then you you listen to a panel like this, where it's just one of the all-time great writers of of comic books and pop culture, and and such an influencer in pop culture. You know, you hear all these stories about his writing advice and and what he told people they should they should put into the writing, and that's where I kind of really perk up and listen, because you know you try and learn from the great ones, right? So that panel was was great and that's again the kind of thing that i love at comic-con more than anything that sort of sticks with you you know years later you know i look back on past comic cons and i was very lucky um a, a long time ago to see ray bradbury um only a couple years before he passed away give a talk and that's one that stuck with me i've seen people like you know roger corman and you know these real legends of film and tv and comic books talk and those are really some of the best things that you you could ever see at comic-con that stick with you kind of long after you've forgotten about a new trailer or whatever it might be um so so i enjoyed comic-con at home you know again as always panels can be hit and miss but i thought the fact that they gave you free access to everything was great I thought that the fact that you could watch the panels on demand was great. You know, I was able to kind of multitask and listen to panels while I was cleaning or whatever it was. Um, so that was cool. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's, if they were to do this again, I'm sure there's even more they could do to improve it. But I thought that they did a good job considering some of the, the, uh, last minute nature of it all and and um just a challenge of putting together something like this virtually for the first time ever really so i enjoyed comic comic con at home and the good thing is again if you if you've missed some of the panels they're all still live on youtube so you can go check them out again there's all kinds of panels about writing about games about breaking into the entertainment industry so even if you don't think of yourself normally as you know a comic con person I think you should check it out because there could be something worthwhile. So that's all I've got to say about Comic-Con. And, you know, I guess the only other thing I'll say is hopefully next year we're back in San Diego. Um, I did get to do kind of a virtual uh, dinner of champions with some friends, which was great. It was good to see everyone and just talk about, you know, whatever nerdy things that we would normally talk about. Um, so hopefully next year we're we're back at real Comic Con again. But um, it was a nice little substitute, and it was fun to uh, have that something to look forward to, even while we're all stuck at home. So coming up next, I will talk about three things that I'm into this week. All right, and we're back. So three things that I'm into this week from the world of pop culture. So to start, well, I, I will say, um, you know, I talked about Stargirl last week, and that show just continues to be fantastic. And it just, I think it only has uh, one or two episodes left in the season. And man, it has just been great. So still very much encourage you to catch up on Stargirl if you can. But for now, I'll talk about another uh, DC TV show, which is crazy because, man, DC with their DC Universe uh, shows is just killing it. Um, and that show is Doom Patrol. So Doom Patrol, I'll just preface by saying uh, it's on season two right now. 
I'm still on season one. I've been kind of slowly catching up on the show. But the more I've gotten into season one, the deeper I've gotten, the more I'm actually enjoying it. Um, the show is really well done. The cast is just crazy good. Um, you know, uh, it's got people like Brendan Fraser, who is just fantastic, doing the voice of a character called Robot Man, um, who is a human brain transplanted into a human body. Um, Timothy Dalton is great on the show. He plays sort of the, the Professor X-like character um, known as the Chief, Niles Calder. Um, and, and to back up a second, the show uh, is based on a DC comic that goes back to the 60s. Um, it's a comic that, um, you know, a lot of people have compared over the years to the X-Men. They are kind of similar concepts. But basically, the Doom Patrol is DC's sort of weird superhero team. They're the team that is, comp is comprised of, you know, outcasts and freaks and is assembled to combat all the strangest threats in the DC universe. And uh, the characters are people like Robot Man, Crazy Jane, The Negative Man, uh, Flex Mentolo. Um, and it's a quite an eclectic group of, of characters. And there's a lot of interesting history where there's been discussion about, you know, was it the Doom Patrol that influenced the X-Men? Was it vice versa? Um, but certainly they kind of were created almost concurrently and they are a little bit similar concepts. But um, Doom Patrol has had a reputation over the years for being just really strange and experimental and surreal and you know, in the, I believe, late 80s, early 90s, uh, the writer Grant Morrison did a run on the comic book that was very acclaimed and sort of took it even further versus what it had been and took it into, like, more adult territory, uh, even kind of stranger, more surreal, kind of fourth wall breaking territory. Um, so the show ad adapts a lot from that Grant Morrison run on the comics. And it really does just go all in with the weirdness. Um, it, you know, it doesn't pull any punches. It gets very strange, very surreal. And yet the, the heart of the show is there. The characters are very, very well defined. Um, it, it can be very funny. It can be very dark. It's kind of just a mixture of everything. But again, I would say it's, it's characterized by being sort of in the DC universe, you know, they reference the Justice League and Batman. And one of the characters on the show is Cyborg, who you probably know from cartoons or from the Justice League movies. Um, but it's the it's very much the weird side of the DC universe. Um, so it's really just way better of a show than it has any right to be. The cast top to bottom is great. And I, I will say again that the the more that I've been watching, it just feels like each episode is kind of getting better and better as the show finds its footing and kind of, um, you know, starts to really find its groove. So highly recommend Doom Patrol. Um, it's on the DC Universe app, or it's also on HBO Max. And again, season two is currently in progress. Um, so I hope to catch up to that soon. But even just season one has been fantastic. So I can't wait to get to season two as well. Um, so that's the first thing. 
The second thing I'll talk about is a video game that I've been kind of slowly but surely making my way through on the Switch. And that game is called Kentucky Route Zero. Um, so this is a really interesting game. It's an indie game published by Annapurna Studios, who you know you might know from their film uh, output. They also have dabbled in video games and have actually pretty quickly developed a good reputation for publishing um, interesting, quirky indie games. And Kentucky Route Zero certainly fits that bill. Um, there's all kinds of stuff you can find online about the making of this game. Um, from what I understand, it was first published, um, I believe, well over a decade ago, and it was published episodically. So you'd have a chapter come out, you know, and then a couple years later, another chapter would come out, and they would try and get more funding and try and uh, get another chapter going. It, it's a very small team of people that created it. Um, and so basically over the course of over a decade, they finally had the whole game and it had been released in chapters. But then just this past year, the whole game was finally available as one sort of complete package and you could get it on uh, consoles, including Switch. So I've been playing it on Switch and this game it's a little bit like the old point and click adventure games, but not exactly because it's not really puzzle based so much as it is just story based. And the story is very strange. It's almost like David Lynchian in a way because it's sort of nonlinear, doesn't always make a lot of sense um, in, in kind of a concrete way. Um, it's very surreal, dreamlike. And basically, you play this truck driver, this delivery man, who is trying to deliver this package, um, and he can't figure out how to get to the place where it's it's supposed to be delivered to. And he basically ends up going on this sort of crazy road trip and with all these strange stops along the way, meets different people. And again, very surreal it's almost like a poem. I've heard people talk about it that way, where a lot of the choices you make are not good or bad choices, but it's about kind of how do you want the story to play out? How do you want the characters to respond? How are you making these different pieces fit together in terms of the narrative? And so a lot of it is just about you as a player are creating a certain vibe and, and, and kind of steering that, that vibe the way you want it to go. So I know all of that sounds a little abstract and maybe hard to wrap your arms around, but it's a very interesting game. It's very artistic. And, you know, as I've been playing other sort of big AAA games like Spider-Man or The Last of Us 2, this has been kind of a nice palate cleanser. It's the kind of game you could play for, you know, 20 minutes before you go to sleep, um, especially on the Switch. It's great in that way. Um, and I, I like it a lot. You know, I've always liked kind of narrative-driven games and, and point-and-click games. And, and this is really something with a very unique artistic vision that I think is worth uh, checking out. So that's Kentucky Route Zero. And, you know, not for everyone, I would say. If you're just an action gamer or, um, you know, if you're not into kind of story-driven stuff, then maybe steer clear. But if you do kind of like indie games and you like more um, artistic games, quirky games, 
definitely give it a look. It's definitely unique, um, something that I think you won't uh, soon forget. So that's my second pick. And my third pick is going in a totally different direction. It is a book that I recently read, and the book is called Under the Black Hat by Jim Ross. And so Jim Ross is a name you very well may know if you're a wrestling fan. Um, I, of course, am a longtime fan of of pro wrestling. I grew up with WWE, uh, then WWF, uh, then known as WWF, I should say. And, um, you know, I was always fascinated as soon as sort of the Internet came around and you started to be able to hear the behind the scenes stories and backstage gossip and everything. That part of the wrestling business always was very fascinating to me because I think when I was a little kid, you always sort of wondered how the sausage was made and what really went on behind the scenes. And once you started to get that insight, you know, around the time when I was a teenager, it was just so fascinating to me. And I've always been interested in that world. It's kind of this crazy carnival, you know, world of just larger than life characters and this weird blur between what's real and what's fiction which is super fascinating in a weird way. Um, Even if you don't like actually watching wrestling, if you're just into kind of like meta fiction or what's real, what's not real, wrestling is very much in that strange nexus of, you know, what's real becomes fiction, what's fiction becomes real. And so Jim Ross, you know, he's been a longtime commentator, a play-by-play guy for WWE, sort of through the boom that they had in the 90s during the so-called uh, attitude era. And uh, he, he had all kinds of um, issues with WWE. He had a very tumultuous relationship with them, even though he was in many ways kind of the voice of the company for a long time. And he, he somewhat recently, uh, there's a, a new upstart company called AEW that has been competing with WWE They're airing uh, Wednesday nights on TNT. Um, And there's a lot of people that had left WWE, gone to AEW, people who were disgruntled. And Jim Ross was sort of on board from the beginning and has now become the voice of AEW. So this book is all about sort of his last 10 years or so, or actually maybe a little more, kind of looking um, at his career in WWE from about 2000 to now so really about 20 year a 20 year period he had written a previous book that uh was about his earlier career you know he's been around forever since i think uh the 70s um you know he was in wcw then was in wwe um and did uh, various other things but this book is kind of the more recent chapter of his career um of his long career and kind of it talks about how he was so in that wwe culture and um it was almost like more than a job to him it was it was kind of his whole life and he was like this bad relationship where he had this very uh up and down relationship with vince mcmahon the owner of wwe and it was like he had this uh kind of love but also hate for vince mcmahon And there was all kinds of drama between them. And, you know, it sounds like you get a lot of, you get from this book, you get a lot of crazy Vince McMahon stories. And he just is one of those all time, like crazy larger than life characters. Um, 
and you know Kim Ross has a lot of interesting things to say about working with Vince McMahon and the amount of devotion and loyalty that working for him required. And then this weird other side to it, which is that Vince would just sort of go out of his way to embarrass Kim Ross, to kind of belittle him, to take some of his real life issues with uh, Bell's palsy and other health issues and use them as kind of embarrassing on-air storylines. And, and that's definitely been Vince McMahon's MO for a long time is to, um, is to do that. And so, you know, Jim Ross really uh, does a nice job of, of telling these stories. It's, it's a real page turner. It's a relatively short book and it's very succinct, I would say. But, you know, once you start reading it, you can't put it down because um, there's so many interesting stories and anecdotes um, that if you're a wrestling fan in particular, um, I've read a couple books, you know, kind of in that wrestling world. And this is, is definitely one of the better ones that, that I've read. Um, so I would recommend it. Um, and, you know, probably the gold standard of wrestling books, if there is one, is, uh, Mick Foley's book, uh, his original book that he wrote. Um, and, and I don't know if anyone that I've seen has topped that one just because it turned out that Foley was actually a, a really great writer in addition to having some of the craziest stories, you know, you will ever hear in your life. But Jim Ross, I think he does have a very direct way of writing and kind of a wry sense of humor. Um, so I did think this book was really enjoyable. And again, if you have that weird fascination like I do with the uh, inside baseball of the wrestling industry, I would definitely check it out. Um, again, it's called Under the Black Hat, My Life in the WWE and Beyond by Jim Ross. So those are my three things for today and for this week. And so that's really it for now. So like I said, thank you for listening. And I will uh, be back next week, hopefully, with even more to talk about. Um, so keep giving me your feedback, keep giving me your suggestions. And again, if you want to be on the podcast and you're listening to this, you never know. I do want some really great guests to talk about all things pop culture with me. So give me your feedback and thank you again for listening.